Hey listening friends, Jack here. And I would like to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode. And that sponsor is Atlas. Atlas is a branding, web development, and content marketing agency. As a business owner, your day-to-day is uncharted enough. From branding and web design to content marketing, Atlas will help you navigate this digital terrain with ease. In today's world, social media is a great tool. However, you need to have a concrete, focused plan on how to use it. And that's where Atlas comes in. Atlas can help you navigate this modern digital world. And on top of that, Atlas can also help you with traditional means of marketing. So if you would like to book your free consultation, please visit atlasokc.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-O-K-C.com for your free consultation. Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. Who are Kenyatta and Jack? We're just friends who are Gen Xers, former Air Force brats, parents, taxpayers, and citizens of the earth. And we're here to save it one podcast at a time. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and non, non-gender conforming folks. All are welcome here at the house of Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. And on stage, as always, as usual, forever and ever, amen, it's me, Kenyatta. It's that gentleman over there, Jack. Hi, Jack. <laughs> Hello, Kenyatta. How are you doing today? I mean, I know the answer to that, but our listening friends don't. Um, I'm well for you and the listening friends. I'm I'm well. I'm a little little sore because I um, bucked my tradition and did workouts two days in a row, and it was a lot of uh, squats involved. So yeah, yeah, I can see why you're sore. I can barely feel my legs, but I'm sitting in the chair and I'm I'm good. Good. How about you? I'm. I can't complain. I don't. Know if it'd do any good anyway, but well, you know, that's what adult beverages are for. Correct. And I have a big bottle of adult potato juice in the fridge. <laughs> right. Anyway, you, you know what? I have a bottle of uh, potato juice as well. Mm, okay. and I also have a bottle of juniper juice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nice. I also have a, you know, maybe a. We'll we'll just stop there. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Don't don't mind us listening, friends. We're we're just being silly as per the contracts. Anyway, that's right. That's in the our contracts that we signed when we started this little podcast. In blood and with our right thumbprints. Anyway. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again today for another episode. As usual, we have we have a, a menu chock full of of interesting things. But as always, we start with our usual segment, but for me, it'll be a smidge different today. Usually we'll kick in, we'll each kick in a WTF moment, something that, and as you know, something that's shocked or surprised us during the past week. And really, 
nothing is too shocking. It's just more annoying than anything. But I myself decided to buck the trend a little bit this week only because of something I came across last week and then some things that have occurred real recently. And to me, they kind of tie in together. So I wanted to go that route. Yes. So I call my little bit for the day, Food for Thought. And the Food for Thought idea I want to get into, and I won't take up too much of anyone's time, but the idea I want to get into is the idea of legacies, i.e. the things that we leave behind when we shuffle off the mortal coil, yada, yada, yada. And I'm not talking about material things like money or estates or titles or anything like that. But the most more recent things that have come into the news were uh, two deaths. One, a very notable figure. One, not so notable or probably more notable in a certain community. Um, listening friends, if you've paid attention to the news in the last day, um, you'll know that Queen Elizabeth II uh, passed away the age of 96. Um, Our condolences to the United Kingdom. Indeed. 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 And uh, just to be honest, my fascination with the British royalty kind of fizzled out when Princess Diana died. And then I felt some kind of way when, you know, things came out about how the family treated her and how they treat people in general. But that's their thing. It's what it is. But you can't let something like this pass without acknowledging the significance of it. Because for most of us that are alive right now, Queen Elizabeth was the queen, period. That's the only queen most of us know that are aware of the British royal family setup. So that's the one we're most familiar with. And she held that uh, that title for, what, 50 years? 60? Uh, 70. I yeah. 70. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she's she's been on the throne a long time. And granted, the royal family are more quote unquote figureheads than they necessarily used to be, but her position it was a it was a big deal. So there's a certain amount of significance in speaking about the moment. But then you want to talk about also the legacy that she's left behind. And indeed, most of the British family. Cause again, not that I paid that much attention over the years, but I heard things even when I didn't want to about the exploits of the family and you know, what went on with between her and her sister and what went on between, um, you know, the issues that going on with her brother right now. I won't get into it. Um, but then, of course, how she felt about Princess Diana, so on and so forth. So me personally, I have mixed feelings, but there's no denying that there's a certain legacy, a certain mindset that's been handed down over the generations there. I'm one of those kinds that will that hope that even though. Her son Charles steps up immediately as King Charles. Yeah. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that at some point that that mindset finds some measure of evolution as the years go on. Um, maybe, maybe not. There's a certain rigidity in that family that's hard to break. But yeah. that's their legacy. Yeah. The other. Just, I was mm-hmm. gonna say just real quick when you sure. said um, what was going on with her brother that you didn't want to get into. Did you mean Prince Andrew? Correct, sir. Charles's brother. Okay, Correct. I just wanted to clarify. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> Charles's brother. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. No, that's fine. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to like touch that, that with so. a, a ten foot pole. Anyway, yeah. so <laughs> that's their particular legacy for for better or for worse. But the other person that passed away, or his death was reported today. I think he actually passed away yesterday. He is a comedian and author by the name of um, oh David. 
and I'm sorry, his name just went straight. David Arnold. I'm sorry. Woo. David Arnold. Um, he's been fairly active in social media for a few years now. He would post a lot of short videos um, talking about his kids and his family. He seemed to be very family oriented. Very funny guy. Very straightforward. And as a matter of fact, he just had a stand up special come out on Netflix recently. So he was gaining some mainstream popularity. And um, it was reported that he passed away yesterday at the age of 54. Oh. And I read about it earlier this morning. I was in shock. Like, what happened? Because he was in the middle of a nationwide tour. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from that indication, apparently there wasn't any lingering illnesses or anything like that. And I'm sure there'll be more details as the days go. But it was shocking to to learn about his death. And I thought, again, about the idea of legacy, the kinds of things folks leave behind in his case i think about the fact that he was a funny guy he genuinely seemed from all appearances to care about his family and how he was raising his kids and he had no problem showing the world that but he did it he did it with a a dose of humor that you found relatable Mm -hmm. and so like i said i had only been following him for a couple years but it was still real shocking to see it but to know that he left such a uh, such a positive impression with so many people was Mm -hmm was impactful to me. Yeah. So it leads me to my last and final thought on this is recently, I believe it was September 3rd, the Foo Fighters had their first concert since their uh, beloved drummer, Taylor. I'm sorry. Tell me his last name. Hawkins. Hawkins. My, my brain today, y'all. I'm so sorry. Since their beloved drummer, Taylor Hawkins passed away this past March at the age of 50. And this was their first concert together since then. It was at Wembley Stadium over there in the UK. And I saw this little clip posted on a couple of people's Instagrams. I think it was on Sunday. And uh, the first person I saw it on was Quest Love, who is also a drummer. And if you know him, he is a part of the hip hop group, The Roots, and also is the band leader for um, Jimmy Fallon. Right, right. Late night show. So he had posted the clip and then I saw it again. You know, a little bit later down the feed and someone else's. So I was like, let me give this a listen. And I was blown away. During the concert, um, the fighters do uh, one of their signature songs, My Hero. If you've ever seen a movie in the early 2000s, you've heard this song. But what made this special to me was the fact that Taylor's 16-year-old son, Shane, got on the kit and played his heart out. It was yeah. some. It was something to watch. And even though, unfortunately, we don't have the video, I do want to play just a little bit of the audio, so you guys can get a sense of what he was he was putting out on this. He left nothing behind. He put it out there, and I was absolutely thrilled to watch this yeah. and 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 to see how Taylor's legacy has passed down to his son. So I will play that for you guys now. Yes.
that boy drummed his heart out and his Didn't dad he? probably would have been so proud yes and and that like i said again seeing that and then thinking about you know those two deaths recently it just it felt to me that it tied in together the idea of legacy mm-hmm. real well especially considering the fact that you know it was reported at some point when shane was younger that someone asked him what did he want to do when he grew up and he said i want to be a drummer i think he's well on his way frankly <laughs> who knows he might have a full-time gig with the Foo fighters i mean really like <laughs> that was awesome and like i said seeing the seeing the video and seeing his face as he plays is remarkable yeah remarkable so yeah. that's what i wanted to touch on today well, was before that we move idea. on to my sure. wtf uh, sure. speaking of legacies and of people um today also they announced that former cnn anchor bernard shaw passed away yes and i i don't i don't recall if he was one of the original cnn anchors when they started back in 82 or whatever it was uh but he was certainly there late 80s through the 90s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for for a long time and honestly his legacy really was kind of breaking the color barrier for yes. that type of job mm-hmm. and, um that that's a pretty yes that's a pretty cool thing although to uh as dave Chappelle once said on the Chappelle show it's always great to be the first to do something unless you're a black person in america mm. <laughs> <laughs> because that means something shitty happened. Mm, <laughs> you had to overcome. <laughs> yes, in the immediate aftermath. Yes. <laughs> oh boy. But uh, I, I just felt that since that's what you were talking about, mm-hmm. that, uh, it's worth noting that Bernard Shaw certainly opened the doors for a lot of people. Absolutely. And, and that's an impressive legacy as well. Yes, and thank you for adding that. Definitely. You're welcome. Yes. So, let's turn to you now, sir. Okay, my WTF, uh, I actually had two. Both of them kind of got my my blood boiling. Um, so, uh, Kenyatta flipped a coin, and this is the one that won. <laughs> so, so, it's my fault, guys. <laughs> I mean, you had a choice between a shit sandwich and a shit taco, so... <laughs> Neither one of these are great headlines. Mm. Um, so, from this is from the reporting of CNN. Uh, it's by, there are quite a few people on this. Sonnet Swire, Priscilla Alvarez, and Paul LeBlanc. And the headline is, D.C. Mayor Declares Public Emergency Over Migrant Arrivals from Arizona and Texas. Now, I knew that Texas was sending... Uh, migrants from the border directly to D.C. I did not realize Arizona was doing it. And uh, the article states that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser declared a public health emergency on Thursday in response to the thousands of migrants arriving in the nation's capital by bus from Arizona and Texas. Uh, That they are, it's their local response to help support the new arrivals that are seeking asylum. And it does sound like there was some thought given into how they're going to do this, but they have started a new, hang on here, I'm trying to find where I just saw this part of it. Uh, DC has a new office called the Office of Migrant Services, and it will be housed within the Department of Human Services. And DC is allocating $10 million to establish and support the new office and the people that are, uh, are, are coming there. Now... Obviously, when you are a border state, 
and you are dealing with people coming over the border, you are going to, at the beginning anyway, sort of take the most of that. You know, I'm just talking in terms of people, money, all of the stuff when people come in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I understand that. Um, but I also think that Abbott isn't sending, putting people on buses to go to D.C. because their aunt and uncle lives in D.C. He's doing it to be an ass to, uh, to poke the bear that's, you know, Democrats. Mm-hmm. That's the reason he's doing it. Because uh-huh. the only cities he's sending them to, he's also doing it to, I believe, Seattle and Chicago. Um, and it's strange how those are all Democrat-controlled places and not, you know, Republican yeah. It is strange. It's also odd that he's not sending them to Hawaii, maybe because a plane ticket is more expensive than a bus. <laughs> if he could have found a way to send them to Hawaii by rowboat, he would have done it. It has Probably. absolutely it's nothing to do with those people. He's just using those people as bullets. It, exactly. It's just a ploy. Um, mm-hmm. It would be one thing if it was, hey, we have worked a deal out with, I don't know, Virginia to help Send. They're gonna. They're gonna help us. We're gonna send a certain amount of people there. They're gonna help people do this and and recover and start. You know, hey, this is what we need you to do. Help people get jobs. These are the documents you got to fill out. Yada yada yada. That would be one thing if you were doing it in conjunction with another state. Mm-hmm. He's just doing it to be an ass. Mm-hmm. And to make a point, he's really he's just using people as collateral. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and it's. <sighs> It, it'll it go over with his base and, and, frankly, the Republican base that still buy into this extremism because it speaks to, again, as, as their playbook has stated from forever back, it speaks to their fears. And if you're getting rid of this potentially hostile environment community, then we feel safe again. Thank you ever so much, Governor. It's garbage. He's yeah. garbage. And it's- everyone like him garbage mm. yeah that's uh I, I it just bugs me because he's using people's collateral he's not treating people as people and it doesn't matter where they come from it all falls into that white nationalist trope of replacement theory and all of that crap and it's just it's just sad when somebody's willing to use somebody in that way just to try to make a political point yes yes it and it's it's not the first time. It's probably one of the most flagrant examples that we've seen thus far. But it's yeah. not the first time, and it's it's not going to be the last unless unless somebody gets in there and does something. Who exactly and what? I'm not an expert at that kind of thing. But it's just yeah. like every it's just like every other ill-tempered child that does something out of spite. Either you correct them, or they're just going to keep doing it and get worse. Yeah. Icky, icky. Yeah. Um, real quick, though, before mm. we move on to the topic that you're going to enlighten us with, I just wanted to read a, a truth, which we all know is a lie, because it comes mm. from Donald J. Trump. Oh, goody. It, I wanted to read this, and then I had a, had a quick thought on something mm. I would like to say. Mm-hmm. So here it goes. Not only did the FBI steal my passports in the FBI raid and break-in of my home, there was a warrant, so... It was not a break-in. Mar-a-Lago, but it has just been learned through court filings that they also improperly took my complete and highly confidential medical file in history. First of all, who has their complete and confidential medical file sitting in their office? Nobody. He does. does. He does. 
But here's the other part to that, uh, which <laughs> somebody who's a prosecutor pointed out. Uh, if they took them, that implies that his records were mixed in with the records that he stole from the United States government. And that's why they were taken, because he had combined the two, which unfortunately now he won't be able in court to say that he had no knowledge they were there. Well, he couldn't have done it anyway, because he's admitted to it on multiple other truths. Mm -mm, that's Nick's that. That didn't. That never happened. Right. But now they can say... You know, before he could have said, well, I knew they were there, but I didn't know what was in them because I never touched them. Well, now that his medical records are mixed in with the stuff and his passports, there's another thing, line of defense that he's completely screwed over because he's a freaking moron. Mm -hmm. But anyway, continuing my file in history, with all the bells and whistles, and then in parentheses, at least they'll see that I'm very healthy and absolutely perfect physical specimen, exclamation point. Plus, personal tax records, illegal to take. Actually, if there's a search warrant and they're mixed in with it, not illegal to take. Mm -mm. And then here's the part, and then it's, with lawyer-client-privileged information, a definite no-no. You would think that a guy that illegally stole 48 bankers' boxes of documents would maybe be willing to give somebody a little understanding if they take confidential records. Absolutely not, because he did nothing wrong. <laughs> you know? The Phoebes did something wrong. They violated him. He did nothing wrong. I mean, you would think that he could offer a little bit of grace. I mean, they only took a few records, not 48 boxes worth. The only grace that he knows is, <laughs> is, is the woman that he tried to fondle back in 1978. Right. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, you moron, you realize that that, well, to people that aren't MAGA, mm. What you're saying is asinine and stupid based on mm -hmm. the fact of your inability to not illegally take confidential information and hire. And I'm really surprised that the only reason I'm thinking that he didn't mention HIPAA is that he probably didn't know what that law was called. Well, most of them on that side do not. So, and if he did have an idea, he probably would have called it HIPAA. But probably. I'm assuming, you know, we're just, we're just here in the business of putting out fake news. What do we know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Mm. Exactly. Anyway, I just we wanted to put like that them. up there or out there. If, oh, you know. and before we move on, though, I also have to mention we know we know this entire statement is a lie because he said it, and two because he has the nerve to say that he's in top physical condition. Right, a physical specimen. Like, yeah, like the kinds they keep in jars of formaldehyde in the back shelf of some hospital supply closet. Yeah. That kind of specimen. <laughs> I was thinking more of a stool sample specimen. That would imply... No, never mind. I don't want to talk about what it implies. Okay. We can... <laughs> All right. Let's move on. Let's do that. <laughs> we, we've successfully gone downhill. Oh, my. <laughs> it's all right. We're, we're going to flip it around. We're going to flip yes. it around. Yes. We're going to stay on, really, both of what we... Both the um, topics that we've touched on already the idea of legacy and the idea of learning what it means to treat human beings like human beings and so today we're going to dive into uh, a story of jane elliott who for those of those for those of you who don't know is a diversity educator she actually started out as a school teacher in her hometown of riceville iowa 
where she was teaching third grade in uh, 1968 when she saw, like the rest of the country did, on April 4th, uh, reports of Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated in Memphis. And she had already had a lesson plan in mind for her class for the following day, but she decided to turn that into an opportunity to show her children what it felt like to be discriminated against. So, bright and early, on April 5th, 1968, she conducted what would be a landmark exercise in understanding what it means to be discriminated against and to walk in other people's shoes, so to speak, even if it was only in theory. And the exercise Mm -hmm. consisted of separating the kids in a class who were all white. This is Iowa, of course, back in the 1960s. Um, She separates them into two groups, brown-eyed kids and then blue and green-eyed kids. And... She tells the class then that all the brown-eyed kids are superior based on the amount of melanin they had. And that's because their eye, that's the reason why their eyes were brown. And because they had this extra melanin in these brown eyes, they were superior. They were smarter. And this is how she starts this week-long exercise to show her children what it feels like because she asked them. Before she dives into the exercise, would you like to know how it feels to be a black child? They're third graders. They're like, yeah. Sure. This is what she does. She separates them up and she's talking to them, letting the brown eyed kids know you're better. You're smarter. You're more superior. She tells the blue eyed kids that they can't play on the jungle gym in the playground or the swings with the brown eyed students. She told the blue eyed kids that they'd have to use paper cups if they wanted to drink from the water fountain and that they would not be allowed second helpings in the cafeteria. What she found during that week of her exercise was that the children that were deemed superior, in this case, the brown-eyed kids, became arrogant, bossy, and otherwise unpleasant to their so-called inferior classmates. Their grades on simple tests improved and they completed mathematical and reading tasks that had seemed outside their abilities before. The so-called inferior classmates also underwent some changes. Those that were outspoken and and ready to jump up in front of the class turned into timid and quiet and subservient kids who did worse on their tests and even started isolating themselves more during recess. And again, that included those kids that were fairly dominant and outgoing before. Their academic performance during this week even suffered, even with stuff that they had been successful with before. So the following week, she did the experiment again or the exercise again, this time making the blue and green eye kids the so-called superior group and the brown eye kids inferior. What she found is that now the blue and green eye kids did take on that same air of superiority, but they were a little bit kinder to the brown-eyed kids because they had just experienced what it felt like right. to be made or to be made to be felt in, uh, inferior. So when the two weeks of the exercise concluded, she asked her class to write up reports on what they how they felt and what they felt they had learned. Those compositions were printed in the local newspaper, which was called the Riceville Recorder, on April 18th under the headline, How Discrimination Feels. 
The article was picked up by the Associated Press, and uh, Elliot was soon invited to guest on the Johnny Carson show. During her appearance, while she is on the show live, calls started flooding the studio, and most of the people calling in were angry as hell. How come this this surprises no one here? <laughs> right. And just to backtrack a little, um, the kids did let their parents know what was going on. And, you know, some of those parents were not happy with how their kids were being treated. So the people that were calling into the studio had the same kind of sentiments. How dare you do that to these children? Um, she got hundreds of letters, most of which had feedback of the same sort. Notably, one letter that contained the line or the excerpt. How dare you try this cruel experiment out experiment out on white children? Black children grow up accustomed to such behavior, but white children, there's no way they could possibly understand it. It's cruel to white children and will cause them great psychological damage. She would uh, conduct hang on a second. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Go ahead. That, Take it in. <laughs> that is almost exactly a white parent at a school board meeting that took place yesterday bitching about how you can't teach CRT. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean... You see, you see how these things always come in cycles? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a theme of our podcast. Sure, <laughs> sure. That in terms of shitty racism, it's just circular. <laughs> it, it's always going to get back around to the same shitty shittiness. Mm-hmm. Every time. And, and not only were the parents of these children, obviously, concerned, but a lot of the townsfolk were concerned as well. Nonetheless, she would conduct this experiment for the next nine years that she continued to teach third graders. And the next eight years after that, when she taught seventh and eighth graders, she gave up teaching altogether there in Riceville in 1985 so she could conduct the exercises on a larger scale for groups outside of uh, schools. So in 1970, she demonstrated the exercise for educators at a White House conference on children and youth. ABC broadcasted a documentary about her work. She has led training sessions at General Electric, Exxon, AT&T, IBM, and other corporations, and has lectured to the IRS the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Department of Education, and the Postal Service. She has spoken at more than 350 colleges and universities and appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show five times. So that's background on basically her legacy, what she intends to leave behind. And it, I think it should go without saying that she was already a person with a certain mindset that she could watch the news reports on the aftermath of Dr. King's assassination and know just in that moment, there's more here that I can do. And yeah, there was, yeah. she recollects going into midway through and during the day, or I think during the week, during the first week of the, of the exercise, she goes into the teacher's lounge to tell her fellow teachers, Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what's happening. I'm seeing things happen already with my kids. They're understanding what, discrimination feels like she asked the other teachers well you know are you talking to your kids about dr king nope so yeah that's mm -hmm. it i guess the the good side of this is when there's a shitty whatever the shitty thing is 
Mm-hmm. There are always people that want to push the shittiness, and then there are people mm-hmm. that push back. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, in this case, it goes to show you that somebody can have the, I, I don't know, the compassion, but the wherewithal and the fortitude, because she had to have known that was going to piss people off. Mm-hmm. And to do it anyway, and I would have to imagine that it made a pretty big difference in the students' lives long term, even if they didn't know it at the time. It's funny you should say that because... Maybe I'm wrong, though. <laughs> not entirely. I mean, it did It did leave an impact with a lot of the students that um, she taught this to over the years before she quit regular education altogether. Not all of them had nice things to say about it, though. And I, I, it's 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 hard not to make a judgment call on those kind of people because we're saying this is 1968 with with the first right. class that she did it with. So we're talking 50 years, 50 plus years. Yeah. And I, some of those. As I say, the viewpoint at home with the parents. So the parents yes. that were the most upset about this happening, their kids probably also got the least out of it. Mm-hmm. So there is that. There is that. So. After her uh, exercise concluded, the, you know, the first one, those first two weeks, she experienced backlash at home. After coming back from doing her, her guest spot there on Carson, she started receiving some serious backlash. She goes into the teacher's lounge that next week. Several teachers got out and walked out. She would be out and about in town doing errands. She would people hear people talking about her back. Uh, her 12-year-old, her at the time, 12-year-old daughter came home crying because some of her classmates jacked her up in the hall saying that her mother would soon be sleeping with black men. Her son, uh, her son unfortunately got beaten up in school and Elliot called one of those boys' mother. And the mother said, your son got what he deserved. When uh, another one of their daughters, Sarah, went to the bathroom in school one day, she came out of the stall to see a message scrawled in lipstick on the mirror. N-word lover. So this is what I find funny as I did my research. And I've, I've, I've read up on her before a lot of times. Right. But some of this stuff, is, as far as the backlash she got, this is the first time I'm seeing it. And it's funny because both of the articles I looked at, both of the, the writers that did these articles had the opportunity to try to talk to some of her former um, students and some of the people um, in the town that still live there and that remember the exercise. Not only they they were in, it, they avoided trying to say anything bad about her per se. They were trying to act like they didn't like the perception that the exercise brought upon the residents of the town because it would make them look like a bunch of bigots. When you see things like this happen in this woman's family, it's hard to think anything else. Yeah, when you do actions that are bigoted actions, hmm. <laughs> come off as being a bigot. Pretty much. I, imagine that. That's that's my thing. Yeah, so, strangely enough, people that treat other people with kindness are often viewed as being kind. Isn't that something? Weird how that works out, isn't it? It really is. And like I said, a lot of the people that still live in that town, they, they still feel some kind of way about this woman. And I'm, I can, I'm sure. <laughs> and the thing, like the thing of it is, though, I can only think they feel like that because something about what was getting revealed 50 plus years ago is still true. Because if it didn't apply to you, 
and you don't have any family that was in that class, let's say, or you yourself weren't in that class and didn't have anything to do with it, how can you work yourself up in such a tizzy 50 plus years later? Does that make sense? 15 years ago? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But in today's world, that just seems like par for the course. It really does. I mean, people are finding shit to be pissed off about. Mm-hmm. And, and these people stayed pissed at, at Elliot for years because now that she had stopped teaching and started taking her show on the road, so to speak, and was getting paid to be a speaker at these companies and these colleges and universities, naturally, the jealousy comes out. Like, not only did you do this to these kids, and let's be, and let me just be clear about this. We have seen numerous times over and over again that when someone uses kids as a reason to not do a thing, they're not really worried about the kids. They're using the kids as a point of sympathy. So their message would be received better because if they just came out and said, my poor little feelings were hurt, everybody would tell them to grow the fuck up. But in this case, oh, you hurt the kids. Now we're supposed to feel some kind of way about yeah. it. Mm -hmm. So um, for many years, scholars have evaluated her exercise and her exercise called the brown eyed, blue eyed experiment. A lot of corporations and colleges and things emulated that exercise for years. Besides, you know, if they didn't have her, then they tried to have some kind of experimental workshop or something like that mm -hmm. that was similar to it in their attempts to for inclusion and diversity in their companies or their schools or whatever, what have you. Of course, she had her critics. I mean, you know, we're talking about the people in her town, but of course she had her critics in the greater, I guess, scholarly arena with people right. that study psychiatry and psychology and sociology and things of that, that nature. They had shit to say about her. One, that it was unethical because she didn't tell the kids exactly what she was up to. When she started, even though she asked them, would you like to know how it feels? They felt it was unethical because she made these kids feel some kind of way. Like these children at the end of the exercise, these, some of these kids were crying. Some of them were enlightened, I guess, in the way that yeah. nine year olds can be. But, but for the experiment to work, the kids couldn't know what was going on. True. That would have affected the results. I mean, that's how experiments work. Right. That's how it works. So I, I would like to add mm -hmm. that since you and I both have brown eyes, mm. she was correct the first week. Correct. Clear. With all that, all that melanin in it. Which, what does that say about me? I'm a blue-eyed lover. My wife has blue eyes. All of my children have blue eyes. What? I can't believe that I've lowered myself. Mm, mm, mm. Just hearing about the experiment has turned me into an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that was fast! <laughs> Wasn't it? In a matter of three minutes? That's pretty good. Pretty good. I haven't seen such a reversal in, in all my days. In all my Golly, days. Man, I feel like I need a red hat with white lettering now. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. But, um... <laughs> Paraphrase Charlton Heston over my cold dead. <laughs> you think I used to like Charlton Heston. Anyway, so like I said, her experiment was widely renowned across those fields of studies. And so um, let me see. One of the articles I referenced when I was doing my research mentioned um, 
a psychiatrist, a Stanford professor by the name of Philip G. Zimbardo. And I remember this guy. And don't ask me to recollect when it was. It was either the psychology class I took senior year in high school or the freshman level psychology class in college. One of the two. I remember there was a textbook that we used that was by Zimbardo. And he was a big deal back in the day. What I didn't know until some time later that he was also the creator of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Uh-huh. which was his version of this same kind of experiment. Get two groups of people together, hype one group up and say, you're better than the other group, and then let them loose on each other. And that particular experiment, which has documentaries and fictionalized versions of it out the wazoo, that was extremely controversial because it, it basically got out of hand. Yeah, I was going to say, in a prison, that I don't see how there's any way that that experiment can work out without violence happening at the end of it. I mean, it was it was students that volunteered for it. It just took a place in the prison. Is okay. the thing, but they but the thing of it is, in in these these kids leaning into these roles that he had assigned them, one group was the guards, the others were the prisoners. And so, as I can't remember how long the experiment went on, but as time passed, the the ones assigned the guards became violent towards those as the prisoners, and. There were a lot of immoral things that happened with that experiment. So that has, the results of that has since been thrown out the window for the most part. Right. But that's one of the more notorious uh, versions of what she was trying to do, basically. Um, Showing people what it looks like to be repressed. But that one went too far. In her particular case, though, her goal was, and still is, I don't know how active she is today because she's 88 now. But for she was she was busy for many, many years going across the, the country doing these lectures and these workshops. She would do the workshops for, like I said, high school kids, businesses. Um, you know, they would have them corporate retreats and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it would be a, a day or three. They would, they would get people together and they would do this basic experiment over and over again, separating them into groups. This is this, and you're that, and this is how it's gonna be. So there was one particular in, um, instance, one exercise, and for some reason, I can't put a date. As many times as I've seen the video, I can't put a date to it, but it looks like it may be sometime in the mid-80s based just on um, how everybody's dressed. But it's taking place with a group of looks like high school kids. We're certainly familiar with how people dressed in the 80s. Good Lord, aren't we? I'm glad that's passed. Anyway, <laughs> so... And this is a, 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 I want to play a little clip of that particular exercise because it, I, like I said, I've seen it at least half a dozen times over the years and it never, it never ceases to amuse me. And it's not for any particularly cruel reason. It's just, as she says, as she says in this clip from the actual exercise, she made her point. Mm-hmm. So let's see if I can pull that up. Please bear with me. Okay. Perception is everything. White people look vicious and ugly and non-caring and cruel and arrogant and powerful and condescending and angry. Are you angry? No. Oh, good for you. Are you angry? Trying not to be. Now, does that take a lot of energy? Yes. Yes. Are you holding it in? Yes. Yes. And are you trying really, really hard not to react to me? Yes. Yes. And are you trying really hard not to look at me? At the moment, yes. yes, why? Because I don't want to 
make myself more upset. You don't want to make yourself more upset by looking at me. Yes. Right. Does that take a lot of time, a lot of energy? Yes. Yes. Is that hard for you? Yes. Could you develop an ulcer over this? No. You had to do it every day. What would happen to your blood pressure? It would rise. Yeah. If somebody stood over you and you knew it was going to happen every day, or you expected it to happen every day, or it happened when you didn't expect it to, or it happened to your kids every day, after it happened to your mother every day, now, getting right along, your hand is still up. You still didn't learn anything, did you? Didn't I just say when your hand is up, you are thinking of what you're going to say instead of what's being said? Didn't I just say that? Yes, you did. And did you hear that? Yes, I did. And did you decide that you were just going to do it your way? I was... Wait a minute, you were on a roll yes, there for I a minute. Yes, I did. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, I now, did. Now, since you choose to not listen to others, what do you suppose we're going to do where you're concerned? Well, listen to me. Thank you very much. Can now, I now, no. Because you're still thinking of what you're going to say instead of what I'm saying. Now, getting right along. I heard what you well, were every, saying. You're doing it again. What you were you're saying. doing it again. I don't care. You're doing it again. It's wrong. You're you doing it again. Persecuted her for standing you're up. You're doing it again. Persecuted him for standing up. The only change that ever happens is when people stand out and arms up. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Are you in any physical danger here? Are you in any physical danger here? Is that girl in any physical danger here? Emmett Till was hanged by his neck after he was beaten almost to death simply because he said made a statement to a white woman. Stop. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, I have seen that that particular clip at least half a dozen times over the years. And so just to give a little context to what we see in there, it's a it's a room full of, like I said, about teenage age kids somewhere, eight, 16, 17, 18. Right. The first young lady that she's talking to, as she's speaking to her, you hear the young lady start to cry when she's telling Elliot how she's feeling. And the row behind this young lady is another young lady that apparently had been butting in and interrupting all through the exercise. And Elliot was annoyed with her. So she's telling the girl, put your hand down because the girl has her hand up. Put your hand down because you're saying you want to speak instead of listening to what other people have to say. And the girl didn't take it well. So what you don't see, unfortunately, is that the girl gets herself hyped up. And as Ellie is saying those last couple words about, you know, the murder of Emmett Till, the girl is walking out of the room, basically having temper tantrum. Right. And then a little bit later in the clip, the girl comes back in and she's crying and I don't think it's fair. You treated me bad. And Ellie is like, that's the point. Like she's reiterating the point every single time. You know, during this, even just this small two and a half minute clip, she's reiterating the point. This is how people of color feel on a regular basis. It's uncomfortable just for the way they look. And there's no control over that. So that's the whole point that she's trying to make when she does this to people. Because you hear how cut and dry she is. She really doesn't take, you know, she suffers no fools, you know, as people say. (laughs) She's real cut and dry in her speech and she's, she has a point to make, and I, I keep reiterating it, but that's that's really the best way to say it. She's got a point to make, and if she has to disrupt you and make you uncomfortable, then she's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And like I said, she's had it critics, not just those scholars in this particular field of study, but various Black people um, who feel like she's taking advantage of something that she shouldn't be because she's white. 
And, you know, but she's been mockingly called a white savior in some circles. I don't agree with those sentiments because just like we had said earlier, for her to have even started the experiment to begin with and to keep it going despite all the backlash for as many years as she did in that little tiny racist, dusty Midwestern town. (laughs) Right. That takes a lot of guts. It does. Yeah. And I can't see knowing knowing what she did and, and being able to do it as well as she did. I can't see her when she goes out into the wider world. I can't see her not wanting to be paid for some labor. Is that wrong? I right. don't think so. I mean, you got to eat. You do. You do. And so those those reasons, unfortunately, you know, the people's concerns with it being immoral and unethical and, of course, her having the nerve to make money off of it. Yeah, it rubs people the wrong way. And like I said, she's not as active as she used to be, but um, she stayed busy for years with the same kind of experiment. And later on down the road, she evolved this to include um, workshops on gender, gender bias and age bias and um, continue to evolve as far as this is what this looks like. This is how it feels to people. And granted, it takes a lot to break someone out of lifetime of lifelong inherited inherent biases you can't do it over the course of a couple days or a week so of course people are going to get their feelings hurt going up in one of these things yeah and i i can't truly say that i feel entirely sorry for them like the young lady in this clip which i'm sure if it's it's if it's if it's in the end the time frame that i'm thinking it was she's what in her mid to late 40s now ish she's our age probably gonna find her i'm gonna ask her how you feel about it now and not to be an ass about it either like genuinely how do you feel about it now because if you're if you're still sitting over there trauma filled going to therapist still talking about this one thing i guarantee you it's not this one thing it's something else (laughs) and i don't i don't say that to make fun but when you shake people's foundations up this severely the only reason that it's this kind of thing would stick with them is that they can't admit what what's been truly uncovered by these kinds of things. That's my opinion. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, she definitely uh, obviously had um, something that I refer to as testicular fortitude mm-hmm. because she was able to not stop in the face of a, a major backlash. Mm-hmm. And in her case, I don't think it was a, a white, savior complex i think that when you are the people that or are part of the people or group that is sort of i guess in power or the dominant group Mm -hmm. the people that aren't in that group need somebody who is in that group to communicate to the others in that group hey we're kind of shitty to these people because that group that's in power isn't going to listen to the person that's not in that group because they're not in that group, right? So you automatically have that bias. You need somebody that is a part of that group to say, this is what we're doing. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. This is what it feels like to the people that we are treating wrong. Period. And so in her case, I don't believe that it was, you know, white saver complex or anything mm-hmm. like that. I think no. she saw something that was an injustice and it was mm-hmm. wrong. And she realized this can make people see a a different way of doing things and Mm -hmm. she kept doing it for the back even through the backlash now i do 
And even a lot of times with some people that are white savior complex, I don't necessarily think people start out with the idea of, you know, I'm going to go and blah, da, 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 da. <laughs> I don't think that's how it starts out, right? Right. <laughs> no, people. it doesn't. No. But I do. I think when people start out in that type of situation, initially they see somebody, they want to help them, yada, yada, yada. But I do think there are certain people when they start getting a lot of compliment. Oh, look at you helping so-and-so. To where maybe maybe they would have stopped with helping one person, but they kind of get a high on being told all the time on how awesome it is that you've done this and you're really helping these people. And uh, and they get to liking that part. So maybe the first time they help somebody, it's not. But maybe the second or the third, it is. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I, I agree 100%. I, and it's tricky. And, and, and to back up to, to what you said, you know, just before that about it had, it carries more heft when it comes from someone in your own community than when it comes from someone outside the community. Because if you, in these cases, if a white person heard XX complaint from a black person, they just write it off and say, Oh, they're just whining or they're playing the victim or they're over exaggerating. Like in the instance of police brutality, they're just playing right. the victim. But let a white person of some note come up and say the exact same thing. And they're like, oh, my God, this is an issue. That's happening? Yeah. Like, it's, Did you it's, not it, see that news story? It's tiresome to constantly see things that communities of brown and beige people have legitimate serious concerns about always having to be stamped and co-signed by a white person before the white people would take it seriously. It's a painful, painful thing to acknowledge. Does it happen near as much as it used to? No. But then what I've been starting to see is, I don't even want to say leaders, because I don't think an ethnic group should necessarily have leaders, but so-called more outspoken uh, civil rights activists in the Black community start to get listened to by the majority and then that goes to their head i'm i'm seeing that yes. happen with somebody in particular right now they started off doing good works and then all the attention and all the notoriety and all the the relevance that started to get heaped upon them went straight to their heads and they're no longer doing it for the people they're no longer doing it for the culture they're doing it for themselves they're, and they're they, doing it for the bank account for the bank account, the books, the podcasts, notorieties, the the columns, whatever, whatever, what have you. So I've I've seen that happen, and and you're right. No matter which side of the fence you're on, and which community you start out in, it can go straight to your head, where the the rewards start to outweigh the mission. I don't think that ever was the case with her either. But like I said, I've I've over the years. That I've, I've followed her. I've, I've noticed that was a lot of the criticism that people had for her, especially from the black community. They felt like she was taking advantage. And I can see it, but it would be a different story if we saw her change her approach or anything that she was saying over the years. She hasn't. She's, yeah. she's, she's kept the same basic approach for all these years and it's been effective. It's obviously been very effective. And when you, when people walk away from these workshops, whether they're pissed off or they're crying, or all of a sudden they have, you know, a Saul on the road to Damascus kind of revelation. Whatever the case may be, I don't think too many people come out of what she offers unaffected. Yeah. That's I would say point. in her case, if she would have... Uh, I'm not saying anything negative that corporations paid her for 
what now would be called diversity training. Yes. Um, I think the difference would have been, and it would have been a valid criticism that it was a white savior complex. If afterwards she started using uh, people of color to grift money off of them. Because to me, that would have been going to her head, and then she's turning the people that she originally was trying to help into a mark. True, and I've, I've saw, I've seen no evidence, you know, that she approached anything like that. Yeah, based on what you said, her she started in nineteen what sixty eight, and mm-hmm. her approach was the same the entire time. It was, which it really was. You know, and people can have life changing moments and. You know, she could have sort of had, you know, these thoughts or whatever that, hey, this is not fair. This is an injustice. And it took, unfortunately, somebody being assassinated. And that was her moment of, okay, I have got to do something. It may be small. And I'm going to do it. And I don't give a crap what the the backlash is. Because she had to have known that was going to piss people off. I'm sure she knew, but she may not have been ready for the extent of it. Right. For people, <laughs> for people threatening her damn family. You know, that's right. just, ugh. Like, like I say, anytime, anytime you threaten to dis- disrupt the status quo and people's comforts, someone's going to get very, very pissed. Like cornered animals, they're going to get very pissed at you. Yeah. So I, I give her all the props in the world for that kind of work. I really do. And like I said, she's, She's someone that I've I've followed over the years, and I've always been intrigued with her and her story and, and how she came to where she used to be. Um, yeah. So for you and our listening friends, if you want to check out more about Jane Elliott, there is an episode of PBS's Frontline that covers her and her exercises. It's called A Class Divided from 1985. And there's also a 2001 documentary called The Angry Eye. So, and I'm sorry, also, the the classroom exercise that she started out with was actually filmed in 1970, two years after she started it. And that was actually the first of the documentaries made on her. Yes, which was called Eye of the Storm. So there's at least three documentaries out there about uh, Jane Elliott and the blue eye, brown eye exercise. So... Yeah, I I just want to add real quick. Mm-hmm. One of the things over, well, since we started the podcast, really, um, and maybe even before when I started mine, is I have really contemplated over this time frame of just the irony that there is a whole group of people that villainize people that try to help others, <laughs> and I'm I mean like down getting pissed off and seeing red based on other people's desire to want to help people. You know what I mean? How am I, how is somebody that doesn't want say a 30 year old to have to declare bankruptcy because they were in a car wreck and they had a major medical bill that they can't pay. How is that wrong? Not wanting someone to do that. How is wanting a young child to understand there are people that are different from you and this is what these actions make them feel like and it's not the same it's not a lifetime got a week's taste of it and if you didn't like it for one week you're not gonna like it for the all of your life (laughs) which in turn 
theoretically, should make them better people now because they should have empathy. I guess that's what I'm saying. This country villainizes empathy. It villainizes softness. And, and I'll take it back. It villainizes sensitivity. And sensitivity is not the same thing as softness. I've learned that just on a personal level in the last few years. People love to call me sensitive, which they equate as being soft. I've been accused of being a lot of things. Not really soft. Yeah, I can uh, <laughs> I can tell you right now, as somebody that went to elementary school with you, <laughs> uh, as a fifth or sixth grader, you did not want to... Uh, you would have got a tongue lashing if you pissed off Kenyatta. <laughs> she may not have been like vocal or necessarily like, you know, like a, but if you made her mad, she was going to let you know she was not soft. <laughs> she was, she was not. I do Which not disagree. <laughs> Which is I fine. Do... I'm not, I'm not saying it was bad. <laughs> oh no, I, I didn't get that impression. And I do agree with you. The thing of it is, you know, as we all do, as we get, we have that space, you know, teenage years in our early 20s as we grow up and we evolve and we learn things about ourselves we listen sometimes to the things people aren't saying so you know like me personally i would hear oh you're sensitive and that would translate to being soft no it's, it's not and then somehow being soft was like a bad thing being thoughtful or considerate or helpful Details was a bad thing because somehow, according to that person's viewpoint, you were benefiting in a way that they could not. And how dare you get something that they can't have? So you're just going to have to go it alone. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just it's, strange to villainize empathy and mm -hmm. being sympathetic. Mm -hmm. and like you soft. Like, really? You're acting like that's bad to be, to think about other people? What? What? Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, we've seen instances, obviously, throughout history, written and unwritten, of people starting out, like we said, starting out with decent intention, and then somewhere getting getting warped by it. We've seen it. That yeah. doesn't mean it happens all the time. It doesn't mean it happens most of the time. But to consider someone soft because they made a choice to try to operate at the best level of, of mutual dignity that they can. Yikes. So you just rather have people walking around just stone cold assholes. Yeah. And if, if that's the case, I I fear for you because you're going to come across one of those people one day <laughs> and they're gonna be a bigger asshole than yeah. you. You're always Let gonna me. you're always gonna find a bigger asshole. Let me know how that interaction <laughs> works out. <laughs> to uh to quote Qui-Gon Jinn from the Phantom Menace, there's always a bigger fish. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> always. Always. And, yeah, you are always going to find somebody that can out-asshole you. Mm-hmm. But we sh that's the problem. We shouldn't even try to be look. We shouldn't even be trying to look for it. You know what I mean? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I'm not saying that you, what you're implying. It's just almost like what society is. Society at large is trying to tell us as individuals. It's shitty out yeah. here. Just well, keep an know. eye out because there's something shittier. It should be the reverse. Shitty things should be the exceptions, you know. Yeah, and I'm pr I'm pretty sure on a, on a larger scale they are is that we always hear about the shitty things. We don't always That's hear about the true. decent things. The the kind things don't necessarily get put out there because the shitty things are so shitty and they shock people. So the shitty thing gets, uh, you know, gets reported on more than the other. But 
You know, you may be the Carl Lewis of assholes, but somebody's the Usain Bolt of assholes. Correct. Somebody. <laughs> he's he's gearing up to meet you one day. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. ready. He is ready. So um I'd like to I know we're getting to the end. Yeah. I want to wrap up by That always um, happens with us. I know. It's surprising, but it does. I like to wrap up with um a mention of a, a, a nice little song that for some reason I, I go down rabbit holes when it comes to listening to music. I understand that feeling. I do it all the time. And I will go from listening to this and change to something completely different the mo uh, you know, in the time it takes for the stoplight to change. So today right. <laughs> uh, today on the way to the gym, I had a thought, oh, I want to listen to them right now. And so I did. And I heard this song, which I've always loved. And I'm like, I need to mention this song because it feels like thematically where we would like to be with what we do on this pod. It's by the legendary British group, Tears for Fears. One of my favorites. I know. The song is called Sowing the Seeds of Love. That's actually my favorite Tears for Fears song. I love look, that song. Look I, at me. I have it memorized. Look at me. Listening friends, if you've never heard of Tears for Fears, do yourself a favor. And when you finish here, immediately, immediately excuse yourself and listen to them. They actually, are... first, go punch yourself in the face for never <laughs> listening to Tears for Fears. And then go listen to Tears for Fears. And then go listen to Sowing the Seeds of Love. So we're we're talking about self-inflicted violence and then listening to a love song? Yes. Very good. Okay. The part that made me think about <laughs> the part that made me think about what we want, what we're trying to do here, starting from love and trying to generate the kind of conversations that we would like to see amongst all of us as individuals. The part that caught me is uh, goes as follows. And this is actually, I think, what they call the bridge. Feel the pain. Talk about it. If you're a worried man, then shout about it. Open hearts. Feel about it. Open minds. Think about it. Everyone read about it. Everyone scream about it. Everyone read about it. Read in the books and the crannies and the nooks. There are books to read for us. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that encapsulates the sentiment. It here. does. And further down the line. Uh, in the song also, because he says, um, I love a sunflower, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which the idea for that song came from that line because it was graffiti as he was driving to the recording studio, <laughs> by the mm -hmm, way. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the next line after that is, and I believe in love power. Yes. Love power. Yes. So, which is what we're trying to say. Love yes. So I'm so glad you mentioned that song. That's such a... An amazing song. Yes, and they're an amazing group. So They really are. And so, earlier this year, they released their first all-new album in 17 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm, I've, I've been neglectful that I have not checked that out in its totality, but when it comes to something like that, I need to be fully, fully present, and I just I haven't I haven't entirely been, so I need to give yeah. that its due. It's I a need good to album. And one of the songs that's on there is really uh, kind of sad. It's got to be hard for uh, Roland. We're not friends, mm -hmm. but Roland Orzabal, Kurt Smith. Um, but Roland wrote that song. His wife, uh, 
I believe committed suicide in 2017. She had an mm. alcohol problem and it's a song about living with like her ghost and sort of what happened. And it's a really, really good heartfelt song. But now every time they're in concert, he's going to have to sing this song for a while. So yeah. that, that makes it kind of tough, but yeah. I don't know. That might be something therapeutic for him. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm just guessing, but, um, creatives are a weird bunch. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. We, we do weird things. So and that, <laughs> that may be therapeutic. Really? And yeah. I mean, like, like I'm talking, we're talking about a, we're talking about songwriters and singers that are just, his voice is unlike anything I had ever heard when I first heard it. And I was like, what? Yeah. Huh. Now, both so. Roland and Kurt are excellent singers. Oh, yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, since I have everybody here, one, go find a, a, a concert of Tears for Fears. But it's really strange because in like 2018, Roland was still dyeing his hair. And then in 2019, he stopped. And now it's just all gray. Yes. <laughs> but, it's not bad at all. I'm impressed yeah. with it. I'm impressed. Yeah. Just just embrace your age. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing wrong. But I felt strongly that that song said something to me today of all days. So I felt like I had to mention it and especially those that particular verse. So. And just to bounce all the way back to the beginning, I also want to mention another song that I enjoy a great deal from the aforementioned Foo Fighters. And it's probably a favorite of a lot of people. The best of you. And yeah. After listening to that on repeat lately, um, I realized that it is not a love song in the romantic sense. It's about self-love. It's a beautiful thing. Listening friends, shame on you if you've never heard of the Foo Fighters. Shame on you if you don't know this song. So that is your homework until we meet again next week. Get you some tears for fears, get you some Foo Fighters. Come back and see us again. That's right. And remember, Kenyatta and I believe in love power. Indeed. <laughs> oh, well. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, hit that like button, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is valuable, and we welcome it. If you would like to contact, connect with, or just want to see what we talk about between episodes, you can find us on Facebook under our podcast name, on Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W, our website, podpage.com slash Kenyatta-Jack-Save-The-World, or email at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. If you would like to learn about and contribute to our chosen charities, you can do so at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org and Black Women's Health Initiative at bwhi.org. Kenyatta and Jack Save the World is a product of Hyper Focus Podcasts.